do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Studying. Hey, Future Setters. That came out a little more cheerleady than I was expecting. Anywho, thanks for tuning in, wherever you are, whatever you're up to. We always love hearing about what you're doing on the socials, so drop us a line, paint us a picture. This week, we're chatting with Alex Stewart of Low Tox Life. I'm sure you've heard of her. She's pretty, she's a big deal. She's pretty amazing. And she also has the kind of smooth, velvety voice that makes everything just sound delicious, like her wholesome recipes really uncommonly sensible health advice and peaceful approach to change making. She's going to tell us all about those things in this week's interview. I was really captivated right from the first minute. I was gripped in the editing suite, that is, because I actually wasn't present for this interview. The good lady Jade took the reins on this tete-a-tete and did a superb job. My garbled questions will be back next week for our interview with Jess Scully, who's Sydney's Deputy Lord Mayor. She wears Converse kicks and answers official emails with emojis. We think she's bloody brilliant, so please tune in for that one. And before we open the gates on this combo with Alex Stewart, we wanted to do that thing where we remind you to leave us a review on iTunes, if you have five seconds and feel like giving us a wrap, that is. We got a kick out of this review from someone named Texter Crimes. They said, Can someone please make a cut of all the times a DJ says, I loved this song as a kid? Not sure what show you're listening to, Texter Crimes, but we'll take the five stars. Thank you. And... Huge gratitude to everyone who shouted us a cuppa in the last couple of weeks. We're paying our bills like regular podcast professionals and have you to thank for that. Thank you very, very much to Our House in the Country. That's their handle on Instagram. Check them out. Who bought us three cuppas and welcomed us back after the festive break. Very civilly. Thank you so much. Sam bought us five cuppas and said, My weekly source of inspiration, optimism, can-dos and just-get-stuck-ins. And then there's Andrew, Lisa, Anna, and a bunch of other legends who've supported the show recently too. You're all amazing. Big love from us. If you want to join them, you can just hop on to buymeacoffee.com slash futuresteading. All right, Alex Stewart time, Lotox founder, health maven, and honey voice change maker. Up now. Enjoy. <laughs> Alex Stewart, Lotox Life. Um, of course, it's the book that should be on everybody's shelf, and there is another book coming and in, when we in the in the guise of future studying we couldn't talk to a better woman so alex welcome thank you so much for having me jade no it's been um it's been you've been on my list since season one and i didn't get to you in season one because we just wanted to make sure we were doing the right thing and that we were on a on a track that was worth sharing with the world but now we know we definitely are we've got you front and center now you're based in sydney i am i couldn't be more of a city girl if you tried 
<laughs> which is perfect because I'm ensconced in rolling green hills and it's really lovely to talk to people that have brought this future steading concept to life despite living in the city because people say to me all the time how do I future stead when I don't live on land and yeah. so you will be the living breathing example of that and your book every page of your book is that as well yeah sure is and it, it really is just to spell out how much everybody, every type of person in any type of location has a chance to reconnect to what helps us and the planet thrive at the end of the day. So how was your childhood? Where did your childhood begin that made you the person that you are today that really has become as focused as you are on making small incremental changes, not just for you and your family and those around you, but a desire to influence everybody that um, could also have an impact? Wow. Okay. So there's a few little layers. If I look back to my childhood, a couple of clues that maybe down the track, I would find a way to make an impact in the world. Um, But really when I was very little, I I was born in London then we moved to Chicago. Uh, Dad was uh, given an expat position and then his next expat posting was in Sydney. And when he came here, it was 1980. I was five. Uh, he came originally on a kind of reconnaissance trip, went back to Chicago and said, I think we're really going to like it and came down. Sydney was a bit of a village town back then. Um, Imagine. It was, yeah, I mean, you know, if you think of 1980, it was before a lot of things went wrong. There was no junk food aisle in the supermarket yet. Uh, you mainly still had, mum says, because she's French and she's very passionate about lettuce, as we all are when we're Frenchies, you, I mean, it's like... There is only one thing that unifies absolutely every single day of a French person's life and it's probably having oh, two things, having arnica in your handbag and having lettuce after every meal. Um, you always have salad. And she came here and there was only iceberg lettuce in the shops and she was like, what? <laughs> she I was mean, horrified. Her world fell apart. Did she double her dose of arnica in her handbag? To make maybe, <laughs> maybe. So we were very big city dwellers, like we always have been. And uh, when we got here, I grew up very much as a child of the 80s. And because mum was in Chicago in the real explosion of the uh, ERA, so the, the movement of feminism and women having equal rights, it's a wonderful movement, of course, uh, but it, in a sense had some negative consequences and Michael Pollan speaks to this beautifully where uh, we had this opportunity as husbands and wives in the 70s and early 80s to sit down and start plotting out this new life where both people would be working and how that would look and who would be able to do what but instead we kind of went and lumped everything still from the house on the mum and then everything in the work life now on the mum. She's very excited to have that new work life um, and much more possibility right from sort of school to college to, to the workforce and um, not kind of just relegated to secretary or teacher uh, and, or nurse. And, um, and we didn't. We, it just ended up doubling the workload of women and, uh, and, of course, something had to give. And for me, very obviously what gave was uh, a connection to nature a connection to cooking, a skill of cooking, 
time for cooking, enjoyment of cooking. It became this horrific thing that you just had to get done so that people could get fed and the food industry just swooped on in and owned that and became the saviour to all women everywhere. And, of course, that was just too good to be true, but... Boy, did it well, we fit. all celebrated convenience. The exactly. 80s, the late 80s and 90s was all about convenience, wasn't huge, it? Huge, huge. And, and so it was all about convenience, save your time, save your money, save your time, save your money. But in the background, of course, we now know that that was actually code for make us profit, make us money, make us profit, make us money, and, yeah. um, and disconnect humans from the rest of our planet uh, in in an accelerated way that had never happened until that point. So I lived through that 80s phase where it was so exciting that w- there were all these different bubblegum flavours and super exciting. <laughs> microwave meals. Oh, my God, microwave popcorn. I lived on that stuff as a late teen. I used to microwave eggs. We had the Philips microwave cookbook. Um, if I, could, <laughs> I didn't know there was such if, a thing. I can't say oh. I've ever had a microwaved egg. And I think because we'd had that time in Chicago where everything was new and exciting and different, you know, it all started in America and we followed its lead, unfortunately. Um, we brought that with us to Sydney, I think, and through no fault of mum's own. We were the family that always had the new and exciting thing. We were first to have the microwave, first to have a computer, first to have anything that was progress and exciting and new, uh, we had it. I had a Hubba Bubba bubblegum collection. That was kind of, you know, a really exciting thing for me to do with my pocket money. So I did so not. that could have tipped you in two directions. That could have sent you into the direction of um, elated joy through consumption, endless yeah. consumption. Yeah. But it didn't. And, well, it did in the sense that that was kind of how I grew up. Um, my sort of awakening, if you like, started uh, when I was a late teen and I started to kind of, it's that sort of age where you see that oh, maybe adults actually don't have this all figured out and uh, maybe that government really isn't doing the right thing by people by doing that thing. And, oh, um, oh, there's corruption, like that person lied and we know they lied, so why do they still get to be in a position of CEO or prime minister or president and um, you start to kind of become a bit jaded. I did anyway in my 15, 16 and I I connected with that whole Bono and Geldof era of um, wanting to do something really good in the world, um, in a world that sort of was quite gross uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, um, gosh, there's a lot of gross stuff happening these days, isn't there? Um, but And it's shared through social media. Oh, like my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Let's just not even start. Um, uh, yeah, it feels like people being allowed to lie and have hold highest offices in all the lands is um, on steroids these days. But, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, I remember then sort of because I was a musician, I think social justice became really important to me because the musicians of the time that were the most famous ones were doing incredible work um, to try and move the needle on things like poverty, uh, wars in Africa, to try and undo some of the horrible damage uh, that colonialisation did to those countries and that continent. And that really moved me. And for the first time, I was kind of moved by something much bigger than myself. So I'd say that that was my first moment of feeling like I wanted to be to be connected to something big, um, much bigger than me and my 
boring, simple little life doing daily things. And, uh, and so um, I started to, uh, you know, I joined Greenpeace and I did those sorts of things at uni. Uh, but I started to also feel like um, there was a desperate anger in a lot of people who were trying to do good and that never sat right with me, with the, the people that I happened to meet at that time. And I, I, I was convinced that you could do good in a peaceful way. It had to be possible. It had to be possible not to... And peaceful or joyful as well? Joyful, absolutely. Um, it, it never energetically sat right with me to push and shove your way into justice or push and shove your way into... I, I, I was a big fan of Gandhi. I found him fascinating how much change he managed to make so peacefully. And um, and so I... I, I I was wondering, you know, it sort of flowed in and out of my consciousness. But then, of course, you finish uni, you start adulting. uh, I got the serious boyfriend, moved in. You know, we were doing that whole um, future planning of that type of life. Uh, But then everything kind of went horrifically wrong when I was 25. He dumped me. uh, I was devastated. I had a year that I had to get over it. Um, but it was the best thing that ever happened because really uh, getting busy adulting and starting to tick off society's checklist um, was me with my eyes wide shut. It really was and it wasn't me and I had lost that beautiful teen vibrancy and I think a lot of us do. Um, Just fitting and, into those boxes and those expectations oh, that are set by broader yeah. parameters. Yeah, you think, well, I'm this old heart. now. Yeah, so I better start doing these things. Mm. and um and how sad is that it's just so sad um I know but you know I do still hear myself saying to the boys it's time you grew up a little and you're 14 now so surely you should be right to be and I think what am I saying I need to be encouraging them to just push boundaries yeah absolutely I mean as hard as it is as a parent those boundaries are really important to push we want to raise critical thinkers and people who question Mm. authority in a healthy Mm. way um, questioning authority, there's an unhealthy way to do that, of course, as well. But um, uh, So do you think you were raised to challenge status quo and to question authority? Yeah, thanks to um, my dad being, uh, he um, stepped away from working for someone and had his own business. So I think that by definition makes you a bit of a, you make your own rules, you set your own self up for life. Um, and your family. Uh, so I wasn't scared to do things my own way because of dad's example. Mum, extremely well read, very opinionated, was never afraid to have a controversial um, take on things or debate topics. You know, in French culture, something I've grown up with, um, thankfully, you debate and you debate hard and you debate smart. You have to have facts, you have to back yourself and back your points up. And then everyone loves each other at the end. It's okay to have disagreements. Um, But respectfully. Respectfully, exactly. And you listen when the other person's talking. Um, And we're not doing that now. Everyone's just shouting. (laughs) No one's listening. And it's uh, it's really, I find it, um, I end up like, the child hearing their parents fight and on the fetal position in the floor in the corner going, please make it stop. That's me. I feel it so deeply, these horrible energies. But luckily, and no one in the fetal position can listen to anything or no, enact, no. enact change or exactly. bring others on the ride or create a culture that we all aspire to. Or So you're best to get out of the fetal position and, and stop being yelled at. 100%. 
And and so I remove myself from from those sorts of conflicts that are so obvious that no one's getting anywhere. I just think it's um, it, it creates more fire for them and makes them appear to be more important than they actually are. And I want to find people who want to listen and who want to talk so I can listen to different points of view. That I'm all up for. Um, so I, I sort of, I think through the musicians and, and having fan um, fangirl um, status on people like John Lennon, who was just one of the most amazing change makers in the 60s and 70s, um, and, and just seeing the social change uh, that musicians cared about as artists, and I think we often see artists um, having a much stronger moral compass often um, because they feel the pain of humanity and that's why they're artists so much more deeply than a lot of us. Um, so they well, really shone light they can on speak to our. They can speak to our heart. They don't just speak mm. to our head, which is yeah. sort of where our culture now feels more comfortable. Mm. They can really speak with what we feel moves us. So true, Jade. So true. So um, that there was that awakening in my teens and then the big quarter-life crisis with the breakup and the leaving the job and I became a singer in a nightclub and then I started bartending and I actually became one of the country's best bartenders. I ran a, a wonderful bar in Sydney, won all these competitions, so much fun um, through my late 20s. But I was very sick. I was often getting tonsillitis and often going to the doctor and having to get to- um antibiotics and uh, it was so often that I ended up being um, antibiotic resistant to anything that killed strep and wow. that, that's not great <laughs> to get no, to that point. That's a bit point. frightening actually, especially very, in your 20s, you were very, young. Yes, exactly. You want to you wanna not take those as often as you can possibly reject them so that when you actually need a life-saving medication, it works. Um, mm. yeah. And so that shook you pretty hard, I imagine, and made you realise that there needed to be a different way. It did because I had actually been on the third round of them at that point when they weren't working. So I, literally my tonsils were touching and no one could figure out oh. what to do um, oh. other than to remove them and, um, and that was finally being tabled as an option, which thankfully I never had to do that because I'm not a fan of removing body parts. Um, everything has its place if you can possibly keep them. Um, obviously sometimes that's not an option and that's what modern medicine and the miracle of it is for in those situations. Um, but luckily a friend was over dropping me some soup and she said, maybe you need to see a naturopath. And I was like, Imagine. what is that? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> like these days they're on every street corner. It's amazing. But back then it was really quite taboo and I had to travel across Sydney to find one. And, um, uh, she was amazing. She asked me questions for about 40 minutes before talking. I was like, Imagine thinking about wow. it holistically. Yeah. Asking you what your stress levels are like. Yeah, so that was so different. So many questions. I was shocked. Like, why did she need to know how I was born or whether I had breast milk or formula? Like why? what are these questions? Where is this going? And it, she was just helping to herself construct a picture for what my potential physical limitations might be and what body systems might need some support um, to get my immune system online. And uh, she gave me some revolting herbs and a couple of different um, immune supports, like simple stuff, zinc and C and some, some herbs. And I was better in three days and it was just unbelievable. I remember just being so blown away by that. 
Um, and so do you consider that a line in the sand moment? Do you think yeah. that's actually where I turned into 100%. a different direction? Because yeah, okay. she made me quit gluten to see because there was some emerging research, and which, you know, 17 years ago was very emerging, um, that non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which appeared to be linked also to the extreme hybridization of that particular grain, for um, the purposes of yield and, in inverted commas, feed the world um, mm-hmm. uh, push. Transport, um, long supply chain management. Yeah. Uh, sh- there was emerging research that um, gluten seemed to feed streptococcus bug. And if you had a propensity to have overgrowth, then if you remove the gluten, perhaps you could avoid recurrent infections. And so she said, you know, just let's do three months. Let's give it a go. And I did, but it was the hardest three months ever because I was like dunking my little lean cuisine pouches in the hot boiling water. I was eating microwave popcorn. I was eating, gosh, um, I was having those up and go poppers. I mean, I sometimes made myself, you know, some, of course, veggies and um, I wasn't unhealthy by the the definition of a, a 90s, early 2000s chick. Um, lots of veggies and, and good proteins, but um, still had quite a bit of junk and all of that junk had gluten in it, all of it back then. Yeah. So I had to ditch it all. And then I was eating like fried simple proteins and veg and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go insane if I have to eat this every single day. No taste. <sighs> you know, I hadn't really discovered salt yet. I just didn't know how to make things taste nice because I never learned how to cook and it's not my mum's fault. It's just no, no. It's cultural. Exactly. It got removed from schools. It was beneath girls to then have things like home ec. Um, so I get it, and uh, and yeah, I I literally came, it it came to a point where I cried at a friend's barbecue because everything had gluten in it, and I didn't cry because I couldn't eat anything. I cried because I was the weird, different one, and yeah. uh, and to anyone listening who has that feeling. Um, you know, if you've got an allergy and, you know, everyone just says, I'll get over it, come on, no one had these things in my day. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us have these issues because of all of the hyperdevelopment of our food and chemical systems, um, well beyond what scientists could actually test for and make sure is absolutely safe. Uh, and, of course, now we know, unfortunately, most of the development hasn't been very good for human or planetary health, um, especially when it comes to agricultural inputs, uh, which, of course, you would know everything about, Jade, and, um, and, uh, and additives and preservatives in the food system. Well, I, I still think there's a healthy scepticism that exists um, amongst those who haven't been confident enough to challenge the authorities that have put systems in place, place to support us all. Mm. I still think there, you know, and that's in every sector. Yeah. There's plenty of farming farmers and plenty of doctors and plenty of health practitioners who still kind of screw their nose up and, and kind of tisk tisk you when you say, but I just don't feel like that's what my body wants. Mm. Yeah. I had a, a friend um, talking to me about her um, healing from uh, uh, lymphoma and she had her radiation and everything, but also did her alternative um, uh, therapies like nutritional therapies, etc. And her oncologist said, there's absolutely no need to worry about your diet. Just eat whatever you want. Yeah. You're done now. The yeah. cancer's gone. 
and uh, and she was just devastated because she knew that there's actually so much you could do, and what we're yeah, putting in our bodies creates our bodies. So <laughs> it's just just basic cell renewal um, understanding. So it's it really is as you say. It's it's not um, we're not done trying to um, challenge this massive status quo. I think we're only just at the very beginning, actually, Mm. to be honest. Although you're no longer hoodoo and, um, you know, fish-beating alternative thinking, (laughs) you know, quack, I think we're only just at the beginning. We're just beginning to realise how much we don't know and how interconnected our body parts are and how interconnected that is with the food that we eat and the environment we surround ourselves in and the way we manage our stress and the toxins in our home. And that leads me to the fact that you wrote a book called Low Tox Life. And you weren't just talking about synthetic chemicals. You were talking about every element that actually interjects into our everyday. Mm, yeah. And and so when I had quit the gluten and realised, oh, my gosh, I don't have tonsillitis anymore, I then sort of started to really become a good cook and then started to question other things I started to question my personal care once I was pregnant, especially because I was thinking about what I might get for my son and uh, and started researching everything. And I just couldn't believe how many aspects of our lives weren't set up for us to thrive um, mm. through what we we're putting in us, what we we're putting on us. Then you look at the water we're drinking. Then you look at what you surround yourself with your home. Your pillow is full of microplastic dust. I mean, it just the, the list went on and on. And I was like, oh gosh, where does this stop? And I think through my own journey, that's why uh, I formally made looking after your mental health such a big part of this because, um, you know, anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s and diet culture or, need, you know, not being the skinniest chick in the class and going on all sorts of diets, uh, you know, whoever Oprah was interviewing that week kind of thing and you went on the protocol and you did it and, and you failed and there was shame and you still didn't lose any weight and you often put it back on. There's a, there's a lot of stress and negativity that can come in change making uh, if you're not setting yourself up in a positive way first. Uh, that foundation's critical. So critical. And so I remember when I ran my first e-course, gosh, six and a bit years ago now, um, and I remember calling it 30 Days to Your Low-Tox Life. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we had literally 30 days of topic a day. And I remember just how much psychological coaching I was doing in the group. And I was thinking, okay, this title needs to change because this is not a 30-day journey. It's a decade-long journey uh, if you're yeah. going to be really realistic and and I don't want anyone to feel like there's some sort of pressure to get a medal at the end because you've implemented everything in 30 days. Um, frankly, yeah, that external gratification. This is deeply rewarding internal stuff. Yeah, and as soon as I started taking off all those labels and, and really starting to tune into what we need to feel good about change, change started happening so much more easily for so many more people and stuck and that's what we need. We don't need, um, you know, uh, I think this sort of notion has gone around the internet and it's such a beautiful one. It's like we don't need one person doing it perfectly. We need a million people doing it imperfectly and just having a go and seeing what we can bring in and integrate. And sometimes... And doing it together. Yeah, exactly. Like-minded Learning people. Learning from each other through... Co- 
and just finding ways to collaborate and not compete mm. and finding ways to celebrate and not scold mm. and, you know, finding ways to learn and discover, not feel overwhelmed by what we don't know. Just yeah. sort of realising that with an open book, we've got the ability to make every day a treasure and not an overwhelm. Yes, exactly. Couldn't have put it better myself. So that was kind of how Low Tox Life started a decade ago, thinking food, body, home and mind. And it became clearer and clearer and clearer over the years. Um, I'd originally called it Alex Stewart Lotox Living, I think, and uh, I removed my name very consciously because I wanted it to be a movement much bigger than one person. And I think that was when the 16-year-old Alex kind of came back and um, just, you know, that desire to be plugged into something really big and beautiful that was far beyond me and my thoughts and views, but really tapping into something that humans need to start thriving again. And then, of course, because we're so darn smart, when we get it, uh, everything around us starts to thrive again. Species, plants, the whole planet. Um, It kills me how smart we are and what we use our smarts for sometimes. Um, But there you go. That's, That's part of this, doing this work. And I don't call it a fight because... Uh, every time I it's have life. tried to, yeah, exactly. And every time I have tried to make it a fight and be right, uh, I notice I want to retract and I don't want to do anything. Um, and I think we have to listen to that about ourselves and say, oh, yeah. And so you mean by that that you're following intuition and you're following what feels natural and has flow or you're, so what, just explain that a little okay. bit more. Yep, I, I get it. So uh, for me, it has to be about finding a peaceful way forward, a joyful way forward, and working from our overlaps rather okay. than trying to be in the camp of people who is right uh, against the camp of people who are wrong um, because that just it just doesn't work. Humans have been trying that for millennia and it's not working. So we need something different. We need to, we need to rewrite overlap. our patterns and yeah. paths. And I think we should be very cautious of um, the dialogues we see politically around the world right now where people are abusive to whoever isn't in power and or whoever their opposition is, um, name-calling, lying, etc. cetera. Uh, we see it everywhere. It's not just America because that's the flavour of the month for us to focus on. It's everywhere. Uh, and I, I like the, the politicians who actually talk about the issues, talk about the overlaps and talk about how we can all move forward together in a productive way where really uh, if we think we're always going to be able to get our way in this life and have one party or one friend and, or one partner and every single thing we're going to agree on, we're, li- we're lying to ourselves. So we actually need to reconnect to overlaps and working from them. I, I'm a big believer in that. It leads me to talk about community because, mm-hmm. um, as you say, we can't always agree on everything all of the time. And, and, and that for some people is confronting and for other people it's exciting and for other people it's an opportunity to learn or to share knowledge that they have. Mm-hmm. How do you build community around – because – you have um, 
a zealousness that that has sort of an open-mindedness and a willingness to take other people's ideas on. But open-mindedness can also be, can easily lead to overwhelm. Mm. And also um, it can sometimes feel unsafe. You can sometimes feel like you don't have yourself surrounded by people that have got your back. So how do you build community so that there is still that balanced um, open-mindedness and willingness and desire to learn from each other, but so that you feel safe. Mm. Uh, So I have a couple of boundaries uh, where there are a couple of topics that we just don't discuss in any of our course groups um, or online because, again, I'm passionate about the overlaps, so I don't want to focus our community on anything that causes great divide and just has people against each other. Um, So I'm very very um, insistent on steering the ship away from things that could cause divisiveness. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm just really positive, I think, and joyful and I think and optimistic. And I think if you lead from the front with those characteristics, you encourage an optimistic and joyful community and people who celebrate what's good. And that's how we crowd out the not so good stuff rather than bitching about what's bad all the time. Um, Yeah, just keep doing good. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's honestly why it works uh, because, I mean, I had to ban someone from Facebook the other day on my page. It's got just under 70,000 people. And um, it's the sixth person I've banned in 10 years. So uh, it's, it's really just not a community that attracts trolls or people who just negative for negativity's sake or argumentative just to be right it just doesn't happen and I think that's because of my own core values and so because that's on display because I'm literally the person posting the posts um it's it's kind of hard to get angry at that I guess I want to ask you a little bit more about that. When you are the person that is on display and when you are the person that has a book to your name that very clearly stands for something and when you are just trying to be human in your everyday life, do you ever feel daunted or um, drowned in the identity that's being created? Um, That's a really interesting question. So... I don't think I feel um, I don't think I feel daunted, um, but sometimes, yeah, okay, so you know there's something about the human spirit that wants to go where it wants to go, and sometimes I feel like if someone new comes into the community and you know maybe they've just done one of our courses and it focuses on one subject and maybe then I have to keep focusing on that one subject. Sometimes I feel a bit constricted by that, I guess. Um, A bit reductionist. A bit reductionist, yeah. Uh, I like to be able to be big and think big and move everywhere and anywhere. Um, Yeah. that's Yeah, it's a tough one. But, like, it's not even a big thing for me. It's not even something that I, I think often or think, oh, gosh, I just really want to go off and do this other thing. Um, yeah, let me out of here. I'm suffocated. I'm drowning. I guess maybe one thing is that I've really wanted to write a book about food for a long time and, um, sort of because I'm known as an environmental tox lady and a lot of people don't make the connection between environmental toxins and food, unfortunately yet. 
um, then maybe that was took a bit of convincing to to talk about that more. Um, but uh, but no, I, I I have to say, I feel pretty free and easy to to steer the ship however I I want to. That all of that said, it's it's not a pain point. So you're city based. What mm. does your week look like? So uh, being based in the in the bush, I genuinely forget what the hustle and bustle of city life <laughs> feels like and how um how filling and white noise kind of oriented that can sometimes be. As someone who is really critically aware of your mental health and sort of the external inputs towards toxicity, mm. how do you manage that? What does your talk us through what a day looks like from the beginning to end or what a week looks like and try and kind of include what some of your daily rituals and rhythms are. Yeah, so uh, at the start of the day I always meditate and it's not like the cliche kind of, oh, yeah, of course she meditates. But it's just it can be even just a few slow, deep breaths and deciding what I want my energy to be for the day. Because if you set your compass, it's much harder for anything external to take it off course. And so I, I find it critically important to get in touch with that energy that I would like to emulate for the rest of my day. So whether it's like hardcore focus or whether it's uh, joyfulness and playfulness, which I'll often set on a Saturday when I get to hang out with the family more um, or, um, you know, those sorts of whatever the the feeling I want to have for that day based on what's going to be happening and what I've um, got in the diary, I'll, I'll channel it from the get-go. And uh, if I wake up early I tend not to set alarms for myself but if I wake up earlier than than I need to do my little 10 minute meditation then I'll do something more substantial Um, but I don't pressure myself um, to have that as part of a you must do this because I'm the kind of person as soon as it's a you must whether it's a meal plan or whether it's a meditate five times a week for an hour um, that's pretty much a surefire way to get me to do the exact opposite so (laughs) Um, I much prefer to have a very relaxed bare minimum of things and then everything else feels like a bonus if I if I add it on top. It's a backpack. <laughs> um, I definitely love to, uh, I don't have brekkie first thing. Um, I, I like to give my body a good 12, 13, 14 hours between last meal and first meal because uh, that really works for me. And uh, I go for some sort of a walk. And whether it's just a little 20-minute walk in the hood, uh, we live coastally and we love living coastally, so often that can mean even just popping down to the beach. And um, and then start my day. And the the number one thing that I put on my, my day's um, agenda is the thing that I would be upset if I finished the day and it's not done yet. Just one thing, um, because if that thing's always done first, then you don't always feel really upset with yourself for not having it done. And um, well, tangents can take hold, and and they can be delightful to follow the the path of yeah. using your sniffing nose. And mm. if you get waylaid from those, it can feel like you're always being curbed. So if you get that one thing done, yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, and so, and then I work, and I have like a little mini gym set up at home. Uh, we've got a beautiful terrace. 
Uh, well, actually, <laughs> we're moving soon, um, so we won't be here, but we're hoping to have a garden, actually. It's very tricky to find a house on ground level that isn't water damaged or um, uh, or has any kind of mould or, or moisture in the walls, and that's oh. that's really bad for your health. One of the crappy things about being environmentally toxin aware is that you you know um, and you can measure with little tools that you have um, whether a house is good or bad. Most most houses, unfortunately, haven't been built for longevity, and they certainly haven't been built with great air conditioning systems or you know, there's a there's a lot of, of harmful stuff in indoor air, so it takes a while to find a good place. Um, that's country or city uh, and any city. Um, uh, so that's definitely not just the city, but um, got off now on a tangent there. Didn't you? you moved because you had one place that was full of black mould? Uh, well, yes, so that was, but that was years ago now. So that was about, yeah, two and a half years ago, I think, was it? Yeah, around that. Um and I got very sick. So once you've had um, that mould illness, full-blown inflammation, luckily my husband doesn't have the gene um, issue, but I have a gene SNP, they're called, um, that uh, doesn't recognise the toxins that micro that the microtoxins that mould spores produce, um, and that means you don't detox them. You can't amount you can't mount a, an immune response to them. Uh, so unfortunately I didn't know that about myself until I got very, very unwell. So that's really something we have to worry about. Um, and, uh, and you know, it, it is what it is. But, um, yeah, we moved recently uh, out of a, a lovely apartment, but we had done the COVID move down to the country to hang out with mum and dad for a bit. Um, but unfortunately all the schools went back really fast. So we had to come back up to Sydney, uh, moved in, and then I felt really unwell. I was like, what is going on? It's just like the mould inflammation. But, you know, we're in a two-year-old beautiful um, apartment, top of a hill, like it couldn't be better for someone who suffers from mould issues. And uh, unfortunately that's when we found out there were five concealed phone towers 80 metres across the street. And um, ah, that's intriguing. So uh, that impacted you in a similar way. Yes. So basically, uh, chronic inflammation or an inflammatory cascade—it's um, very similar to what people experience or describe they experience with COVID nineteen, who have a negative uh, experience, like a really negative experience. Uh, very similar inflammatory cascade occurs um, involving different interleukins and it's all sorts of boring biochemistry. Um, speak but um, yeah and so short of breath like just can't catch a deep breath to save myself and uh, and twitches and tremors and night sweats and all these horrific things and uh, you know had a full plan of blood tests everything's fine a little bit of inflammation and histamine um, unfortunately our modern basic blood tests don't really pick up big things in, in the US they have all sorts of fantastic tests you can really pinpoint stuff but we through fault of small population, just don't have the same resources, unfortunately, for people who mm. are chronically ill. Um, but, yeah, so I'm now wearing this really funky EMF protective tracksuit while we look for a new place because if I don't wear it, I feel like I'm living inside a microwave. And I've never had a, a, a consciousness of having electromagnetic sensitivity. Uh, I work on a computer practically full time, um, but that 
close range of the towers, I guess, just must have pushed me over the edge. And has an impact. You hear those stories about people, and there are a lot of activists on the ground fighting these towers being put up at the extent to which and speed of which uh, they are. And I 100% understand why they're upset, uh, frankly, because it feels horrible and really quite scary. So mm, you, you're lucky or well, not lucky so much, but um, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's wonderful you are able to get to a, an answer. Yeah, really fast as well. Because and, that can mm. that can torment people for years and years of not knowing because we don't have the ability to accurately pinpoint exactly why people are feeling not quite right. Mm. They don't feel 100%, but the life still goes on. They're a bit foggy, a bit fatigued, a bit nauseated, a bit dizzy. They're all sort of okay, and I can live yeah. with it. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of good to be a canary in the coal mine, where it happens badly and it happens fast, and you have to figure it out. Otherwise, you know, what's the alternative? I don't even want to explore it. So, yeah, I, I think um, it's been a really interesting time. Um, uh, and uh, you know, that's the biggest tangent ever on what I do in my day, but. Uh, it was just to kind of sort of share a little bit about the fact that we're moving. So I'm actually in a time where I'm being very kind to myself, setting a very low bar and saying, you know, all the things that you might like to get done for yourself in your day or for other people, uh, it's just not going to happen at the level of which you normally like to perform. And you have to be kind to yourself in times like that um, so that you can take care of yourself and really get yourself better. Um and, you know, that's like in anything in life. If something big happens in one area of it, uh, we're a fool to think that we might be able to perform still perfectly in all the other areas. We've really got to tend, tend to the garden, so to speak, wherever it needs some extra love and attention and get everything yeah. back into balance. Tend to the soil, which is the foundation of all of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, I get the sense, despite the the, uh, the few things that have happened that have have been your canary moments, you are intrinsically incredibly buoyant and um, <laughs> yep <laughs> and can do in your approach. And just before we clicked record, we started to have a conversation about those who are big thinkers mm. and largely capable. And we had a conversation with um, Rebecca from Street last week, and she said. Um, I was a hustler. I was a hustler from a very early age. And what she meant by that was that she had the ability to pull people into the the bigger picture and, and take everybody on the journey with her. So I get the sense you might be a bit of a hustler as yep. well. And I mean that very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you maintain momentum? I'm always intrigued by people who achieve amazing things and are doing just the most incredible amount of work and staying focused but they're maintaining balance and self-care and and you know I know that that's an endless juggle for all of us especially those who are taking off or biting off bigger projects but how do you maintain focus and balance and self-care when there's so much to do in the world and people are engaged by you and are encouraged by you and, and are coming on this journey with you so you sort of feel like you need to stick with them at that pace that you've set mm. Uh, I think for me it's really just about moving moving forward all the time, even if it's teeny tiny forward, and thinking about firstly where I need to personally move forward or how I feel called to move forward, what I feel like almost energetically needs to happen 
um, in the world and, uh, and then I feel tuned into something bigger than myself and that's when I feel it's easy to get the momentum. Um, if I don't feel tuned into something bigger than myself, really like feeling that there's a much higher purpose for us all to do this work on the ground, uh, even though it might seem completely trivial to, you know, ditch a few packets and move forward to more produce-based eating or switch out your shampoo, like these might all seem quite trivial, but if you tuned into the bigger picture, then um, you don't forget where you're leading everybody. And I think mm. I need to do that work quite regularly, whether it's journaling, whether it's meditating, setting intentions or learning, doing some learning myself, you know, listening to a great um, uh, lecture, uh, for example, like, you know, while I was writing my, while I'm writing my book now, I, um, every now and then I just think, oh, what am I doing this for? What, what, what is, what is, what do people need this for? What is missing that this could help provide? And I do some work and watch a great lecture, you know, it might be, um, listening to one of Charlie Arnott's wonderful podcasts or, you know, and really hearing from farmers on the land, doing incredible things to turn landscapes around. Um, a couple of weeks ago I went to a lunch and I met Peter Andrews and we had a chat. And um, so if I fill my cup up with something much bigger than me and with um, incredible examples of success around the world, then I can bring it back down to the granular level helping people with the day-to-day stuff, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it does. And do you feel like the day-to-day stuff is where people are really seeking support? Yeah, absolutely. Just the motivation to keep going. You know, it's uh, Brene Brown has pinpointed this that doing things that are different to the um, um, to the mainstream people around you is one of the hardest things you can do. You're ridiculed. Uh, you don't have as much access to, di- to the things that you seek. Uh, everything's harder. Usually more expensive. Usually more time consuming. And to fight this. Um, and I use the word fight as in energetically, this huge time convenience budget saving um, culture that has been built for decades. Uh, it's it's a big energy shift and people really need uh, ongoing um, motivation and support to, to, to remember why we're doing it, I think. Mm-hmm. And so when did you decide that you had a voice that people um, really resonated with and that the way in which you explained these small day-to-day insights had the ability to to make change and genuinely bring about cultural shift, social shift, financial shift, genuine health shift? Mm, I think it's funny – People called me Dr. Alex at school as the person that people would always just come to for advice um, and, and they would know that I would have gone to some nerdy depths to help them. And then it, um, in my first job I remember I would write everybody's Valentine's Day or birthday cards to their partners because they could never quite express into words what I was able to say for them once I talked to them about their relationship. Um, I wonder how many people knew that they were getting a letter by a a ghost (laughs) ghost written birthday card from their girlfriend. Um, 
shout out to everyone at Grace Brothers Chatswood. This isn't even a Grace Brothers anymore. But <laughs> those were the days. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just was always someone that people confided in for the really difficult stuff in their lives um, and the things that they just found really hard to do themselves or to navigate. And I don't know why, um, but I guess once I started connecting to incredible scientists and doctors and environmental scientists and farmers and really learning about this way that we could start implementing that would take us in a new direction that would ensure um, health for many generations to come, not just for us but for our environment, I guess that's a, I mean, let's just be honest, that's a really complex topic. It feels huge. It feels like an elephant that you could never possibly break down into. And I've always hated that metaphor, actually, so I'm really shitty with myself for using it <laughs> one bite at a time. It's like I don't want to eat the elephant. But um, uh, but you know what I mean, like a huge Or a problem. spider's web. It's yeah. like a spider's web and everything is connected. And when you start on one little tiny part there of the web, go. it feels okay. And then Much suddenly better. when you step back and look at the whole web, you think, wow, it's actually beautiful, but it's all intrinsically interconnected. Yeah. And it can be very overwhelming. You think, great, I've got my food sorted. I've ditched the additives. Oh, my personal care. Oh, God, cleaning product. Oh, gosh, everything in the house. Clothing. Clothing. Oh, my gosh, the factory workers. Are they even getting paid? And you can just, you freak, You can. it's very easy to freak out. And I see my um, role as being the master diffuser. And let's just remember what we're here to do. Let's have a look at where you are now. What's your next priority? Take a step forward. And just a yeah. calm, central voice helping everybody remember why we're doing this and helping us all work from what we have in common which of course is our health planet's health and for our children to thrive if you're a parent or even if you're not a parent just for the next generation yeah them. of course absolutely mm. And so on a day-to-day basis, how do you do that in the city? What are the little things that if someone said to you, oh, I'm overwhelmed right now, I know I need to be doing more, what can I do? I'm living in an apartment, I'm in the city, what are the small things that I can do to give me a sense of relief and know that I'm contributing to the bigger picture? Mm. So I think if you're in an apartment, um, that's always a bit more challenging because you can't easily grow your own food. But if you have a balcony, you can grow a shed ton of food on a balcony. Um, it's just about actually wanting to. And often people feel overwhelmed because they just don't have the vocab yet. And so I'm a huge fan of if there's something you really, really want to do, like grow some food, a, a substantial amounts where you could kind of, you know, something really easy in the summer, for example, tomatoes and cucumbers, that you would use a lot, then start going to the odd workshop. Bring your kids so that you don't have to try and figure out what to do with them that day. Make it a family mission uh, and start to connect to the skills that you need to do something like that confidently because often we just go and buy seedlings from Bunnings, we put them in a pot, they don't grow. Why? I can't grow anything. I've got a black thumb. Done. And then no one ever tries to grow anything ever again. And um, and so, you know, you got to go to those workshops and there's so many councils all over the place. Put them on. Grab yourself something like the Edible Balcony book by the gorgeous Indira Naidu. Um, there are so many helpful resources. Kirsty Alf is doing great work in that field in um, down in Victoria as well, actually. Um, 
and selling beautiful little grow kits and all sorts of stuff that makes it easy for people. Uh, so I think, you know, growing something is a really beautiful way to, to connect and to feel like, um, and, and even if it's not going to be food, raising any kind of plant is going to be better than no plants. Uh, anything you can take responsibility for and grow uh, is um, is just part of that beautiful life cycle, carbon sequestration, all the good things. Um, so, um, so I would say grow something. And my next thing would be to connect to how uh, you can get rid of food scraps without them going into landfill. That's probably one of the most important things all city people can do uh, because food scraps going into landfill equals methane. No matter whether it's a vegetable or a meat or whatever, uh, it all is going to end up bad news and sandwiched between a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the next uh, thing that you could do to actually solve that is either decide whether you've got a bit of a garden and you could maybe do a worm farm, they're probably the easiest ones, uh, or a compost bin. Um, I've never met anyone that the little bakashi bins are big enough for, so I would no. just skip that whole shebang and uh, go either worm farm, proper compost bin, or tapping into something like the Share Waste app where you can actually get your scraps collected in the city. Uh, and there are so many wonderful initiatives. Um, in New York, for example, you go to their busiest market in Union Square and you bring your scraps and then they sell you compost to pot things if you want to um, to pot something. Um, but if a city like New York can do it, anyone can do it. Yeah. We can we'll make it happen. with the rest of you in your apartment block and see whether or not between you all you yeah. can come up with something. Exactly. That's right. Um, and, and that actually involves connecting to neighbours more and in a more meaningful way rather than, hi, have a good night, you know, and actually doing something together and rebuilding community. Very special. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's huge, getting that, that food scrap situation sorted because we do not want that going to landfill. That should be forming the basis of wonderful new life, um, microorganisms of all kinds, fungi, uh, if we um, if we make sure we look after it properly, I think we've got to see scraps not as rubbish but as a gift, and I think that's mm. something very powerful for city we people to, to do. Yeah, well done. And so, if there, is there anything we haven't asked you? Gosh, um, well, we could talk forever, but I guess maybe just a couple more tips on um, what you can do in the city. I think. Um, Constructing your life in the way that feels more villagey. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the hustle and bustle of the city, but I just don't feel it. <laughs> I don't have a busy life. I don't have a stressful life. I'm not beating against traffic. I barely use my car. Um, uh, I live coastally, so I feel super close to nature. And uh, I understand that that's not possible for everybody. And some people have to live and work in the city. Um, but start to even just see how you might reconnect to nature, um, whether it's even just popping across to the park at lunchtime instead of having your uh, lunch in the office and taking your shoes off and grounding yourself so that when you go back into that hyper-modern built environment with the fluorescent light and the um, wireless internet, you've grounded yourself. Uh, there's a lot of science to show how powerful that can be in this busy, busy modern world 
to uh, reactivate our parasympathetic nervous system, to um, lower blood pressure. There's some pretty cool science. So grounding yourself is for your mental health and physical health is one of the most important things city people can do as well. And then another thing to encourage community is considering joining a co-op. Um, you get much better prices on all of your um, your pantry staples uh, and at the same time you get some, some community and that's that group of people that you meet once a week and you have a chat and you divvy up everything and it's kind of a really nice way for shopping to not take longer but for you to actually have a more connected experience in procuring your food. And then, of course, farmer's markets. I always say the number one thing a parent can do is stop taking their kid to the supermarket. If you have to use get something from the supermarket, fine. Order it online, get it delivered in a paper bag uh, or no bags, which is, um, well, that was a pre-COVID option. Hopefully they'll bring those back. Um, and uh, and then when you do shop for food with your child, you may get a farmer's market, even if it's once a month, uh, so that what they're seeing is talking to farmers is what you do when you shop for food, um, not um, not a picture of a monkey on a cereal packet on a in a supermarket aisle. And yeah, some with, faceless, yeah. highly packaged, highly processed, yeah. disconnected food source that did actually at some point come from the ground. Mm, and I think that's just one of the biggest gifts we can give our kids because that's forming how the next generation sees food and sees what they see as normal when it comes to food. Mm. Mm. And then cooking with it too. That's the other thing, not just pulling oh, it out of a packet half prepared, but actually preparing food from its rawest form and getting kids to understand from a very early age that when you, you take basic, basic food things, you can actually create incredible feasts. You know, success is an interesting thing. And we we have this idea that success is bigger or better or, or, or more. Um, what though we need to do as a culture I can't help but feel is rebuild our connection to success or our understanding and expectation of success and I would love to know especially as a mama Mm. of how old's your son he's 11 yes well they're just coming into that beautiful age where um, they're starting to discover what manhood looks like yeah adulthood's just over there on the horizon how do you frame success so that it's healthy, so that it's um, achievable, so that it's something that's not daunting and anxiety-inducing, so that it's encouraging and kind of internally satisfying and so that your son can actually see what that looks like? Ah, uh, Yeah, that's a great question. My gosh. So I, I see success as really just uh, having your bases covered and doing meaningful work. I don't see success as excess, um, which our culture tends to see success as, uh, and that's been particularly harmful to our planet and to our mental health because mm. so many people are striving for something, frankly, is not worth it, <laughs> if you get it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I always say the people driving the nicest cars seem to be frowning the most. <laughs> <laughs> I've often said if only we could have a neon sign above all of the cars that tell you how much they still owe yeah. on that. Who Would knows? Would we still drive those cars? Who knows? Because oh. I have a lot of happy, wealthy friends as well, so I don't want to generalise too much. But um, but it's not the be-all, end-all. The money piece is not success 
on its own and exclusively. You have to have to have a focus on uh, internal contentedness and a sense of joy and optimism in your life. And if we don't have that, then I, I don't believe we have found personal success yet. Um, and I don't believe it's out there. I think we need to actually cultivate it ourselves. Half the time it's right there inside us and we need to connect to a deep sense of uh, gratitude. And one of the best things, oh, my gosh, it's just so painfully simple but it really works, is to journal about the things you're thankful for uh, because you will see how successful you are day after day for all the things that are all around you and inside you and uh, um, quite often there's just very little more that we need. Uh, and so what we can then look at success being is having a sense of social responsibility to do more for the world than it gives to us. And that's going to look so different for everyone. It's going to, you know, you might want to serve in a particular charity sector. You might want to serve in uh, environmental causes. You might want to serve in, in all sorts of different ways. But I think success really comes when you feel like you're not just looking after you, but you're looking after something bigger than you. And I think that's a hugely under-resourced topic in the area of mental health, especially. I think if we started to actually help people connect to a deeper sense of purpose and something much bigger than ourselves, uh, then we would quite literally feel more plugged in and belonging to the world that we live in. So good. Some people are ridiculously eloquent and Alex is definitely one of those humans. If you want to find her, she's pretty track downable. You can just type in Alex Stewart and you'll find her on the interwebs. But you can also hop onto lowtoxlife.com and find her that way. Thanks also to Jade for fielding that one. You are brilliant in every way and we look forward to joining you guys next Monday at 6am for our chat with Jess Scully. See you then.